Good morning. Um, so this morning, um, I'm going to be talking um, to you about something which God has been uh, showing me uh, recently. Um, it's a road that we're all on at some point or another, um, I imagine, and um, some are many, um, many leagues ahead of me and, and many lessons learned. But I find that with God, you, you, you go through a cycle and you learn something and you think, great, I've got that. I know that God is whatever. And then you come back to that and you think, oh, <laughs> I need to learn that lesson again. Um, so hopefully um, God will um, speak to us this morning. Um, could you put on my first slide, please, Daniel? So the title um, of my talk today is God is Not Fair. Um, I'm sure we've all um, had an experience at some point in our life when we have thought, felt, said, um, heard from children, it's not fair. Um, and it is, it is a very frustrating feeling, um, and it's something that's very common to us, I think. Um, so I'm going to um, tell you something that happened to me fairly recently, a moment in my life when I thought, oh, it's not fair. I work for the NHS, um, and it's a great organisation to work for. Um, being in the public sector, the, the pay might not rise as high as in other sectors, but the benefits are significant. Um, the, the security, um, the good annual leave, um, sick pay, pension, all that kind of thing um, is, a, is a really um, beneficial aspect of working in the NHS. One aspect of it does frustrate me, and that's the interview process. Um, so when um, I've not had any experience of interviewing in any other sector really, um, but I've heard that it can be a little more flexible um, potentially in other areas. So when we apply for a job, there's a, a person specification, you write an application for it, and then you're literally marked. And I've been on the receive, I've been on the recruitment end of this as well. So you get points, and then the applications with the most points will get an interview, eight, ten, however many they choose to interview. Then within the interview, um, there's a set number of questions that are marked out of a certain number of points, and you get marked on how many points you get um, through your answers. And then the person with the most points gets the job. Now, that is a very unbiased process for a reason, um, and that's a good thing. It should be like that. When you're the person who is offered the job, you think it's a great system. You're entirely happy with it. You think that's absolutely fair. I did the best, and I got the job, and that's great. When you're the person who came second by one or two points, it feels really unfair. And I've been in a situation where I've been in doing the job on a fixed-term contract, already in the team, doing the job, people saying to me, it's great, Hannah, you're doing a really good job. We'd love to have you. And then you miss out by one point on the interview, and it's so frustrating. Um, and because of that process, um, I've had to kind of... Yeah, I've, I've gone through and I'm still, um, I'm still looking to progress within um, my job. Um, and I'd recently got a new job uh, two years ago, just over two years ago now. Drew also got a job within the NHS um, in the IT department, which was great. Um, and that was at the same level as me at Band 6. Shortly after that, so he was in the job for a couple of months, um, the opportunity came up to um, progress to the Band 7 level. Now, I've been through a few Band 7 interviews. My peers that I studied with are mostly in Band 7 roles. Um, it's something that I want to progress to. And Drew was in this Band 6 role, and he went for um, a, a coffee with his boss in a Premier Inn cafe, and as a result of that interview, was given the Band 7 job. LAUGHTER 
So you can imagine my, like, and it's amazing. And I, I, obviously, I benefit from that. And it's no, it's no reflection on Drew. It doesn't mean that he's not able to do the job. He absolutely is. And he still does it to this day um, to a very high standard. Um, but just the fact that from my kind of flesh point of view, like that process was so different to what I have to go through. Um, and and that, that just led me to feel like, oh, it's so unfair. Um, and and there's, there's other things in life as well that come that are, are more important. Some are more trivial, some are more important, some are more absolutely heartbreaking situations when you think, God, that, that is not fair. Um, so this is kind of, I took this to the Lord and... Um, and he showed me um, the um, text that we're going to read today, together today, which is Matthew 20, um, verses 1 to 16. So it will come up um, if you want to follow. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Okay, so we're going to um, look through this passage and, and find out what it's telling us about um, God and about ourselves and how we should respond to that. So firstly, I mean, the first phrase in the, in the passage is, for the kingdom of heaven is like, and this rang bells to me immediately because Jesus uses it quite a lot throughout the Gospels when he's explaining things to his disciples. In um, just a few examples from Matthew, um, you don't need to turn to them. In, in chapter 19, he says, Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Um, slightly earlier in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. These illustrations um, kind of ring bells to us that the kingdom of heaven isn't a physical kingdom. It's being used as a phrase, um, th these situations are being used to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
Often kingdoms, or the phrase kingdom implies, and especially to the listeners to Jesus, an area or physical area of land ruled over by a king with his laws and his decrees in place that the people living within that kingdom must follow. But here it's, it's clear that the kingdom of heaven isn't a physical place. Jesus explains this further in John 18, chapter 36. He's being accused of being the king of the Jews. He's before um, Pontius Pilate um, and setting up a rival kingdom to the Roman rule. And for the Romans, that was threatening. The word kingdom, they assumed, meant that Jesus had a physical army behind him that was going to defeat the Roman Empire or threaten the Roman Empire. But Jesus answers the accusations with, my kingdom is not of this world. In Luke 17, Jesus says, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus was claiming, literally, he was bringing the kingdom of God, and because he was there with them, that the kingdom of God was there as well. The Lord's Prayer says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So through these things, the word makes it clear that it's, the kingdom of heaven is a, is a state of rule, and not a physical realm, and we're to pray for its coming. Jesus is the king, ruling over that kingdom, and those of us who, um, who submit ourselves to Jesus' rule are living in the kingdom of God. If we're followers of Jesus, we have that privilege of living in his kingdom under his rule, seeing his kingdom come through our obedience to him. So really, when I was thinking this through, the, the kingdom of heaven is basically life for the born-again Christian, Um, it's it's us submitting ourselves to God's will and living in obedience to him and bringing his kingdom on earth in this physical world that we live in so hold that thought so the the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is is essentially life as in not the source of life but is our life that we are living every day so now if we move on to the um, to the vineyard owner. This man is in a powerful position. He has a, a big, probably quite a big house, lots of land, enough land to have a whole vineyard in it that he's growing um, produce, and he needs employees. In this parable, the vineyard owner is representing God. Um, so what can we learn about God um, from who the vineyard owner is? Um, so we know that um, from verse 1 that he went out early in the morning to find labourers for his vineyard. He agrees, that a good, he agrees a fair price. A denarius a day was about the average daily wage. That's what the Roman soldiers used to earn every day. So he's being fair. And he went out, a few, he went out again and again three or four times. Um, and... Oh, that's where I was going to stop. <laughs> so he went out a few times. So we know then that this vineyard owner is generous. Um, he goes out again and again. Maybe the workers, I, I don't know, but I'm conjecturing that the workers who were hired at the beginning were potentially the most punctual because they were there, ready to go. They were keen because um, they were kind of first in line. They were eager. Um, and they, they might have been good because they might have been sure that they were going to get the work. But he went out again and again to ask workers to come in. Maybe he needed more, um, or maybe he had enough workers for his vineyard and he just wanted to um, be generous to these people. He also paid the people at the end the same wage as he paid them at the beginning for only a couple of hours' work. He paid them what they did not earn, and that 
should ring bells to us that that is grace. That is God giving us what we do not deserve. Um, I'm going to follow in uh, Daniel's footsteps now. Would you mind putting up my second slide, please, Daniel? Um, and do a little book review slash book plug. Um, so this, this is a book called Every Good Endeavour by Tim Keller. Um, and the, 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 the front of it says, Connecting Your Work to God's Plan for the World. And I, I first read it a couple of years ago. Um, and I found it really helpful um, in, in developing my understanding of why I should work, how I should work um, to bring honour to God. Um, and um, in it, he, he talks about the, um, the kind of the theological concept of common grace. Why is it? So it's not fair to these vineyard workers that some people work a couple of hours and get the same, um, the same wages. Um, um, and in, in, in this book, um, Tim Keller talks about, um, in the time of Mozart, who was a brilliant composer, there was another composer, um, I think called Sal- Salieri, who was reasonably average in his um, ability. He was a Christian, he was a, he was a good man, and he was composing music, but it just wasn't taking off. Um, on the other hand, Mozart was brilliant. You know, we're still playing and listening to his music today. Um, and there's some writings from, um, from this composer that express his feelings of, how is that fair? Why, I'm a good person, I'm working hard, and I'm, I'm not able to earn a living from it. Here's Mozart, living a morally despicable life, doesn't know the Lord, doesn't honour him with his work, and yet he's producing music which everyone is raving about um, and is you know, held as a, as a genius. And this... Um, this the kind of answer to this is, well, it's common grace. God, God has widely scattered, like a seed, his grace amongst humanity. We're all, we're all human. We're all made in the image of God. God worked. We're all created to work. And um, in Romans, it refers to how each, each person has inside them a knowledge of God. We cannot deny God. It's in us. It's in the world around us. Um, and... And, and that even though somebody might not know the Lord, they might not know that they're bringing glory to his name, they might not know that they're pointing somebody to God through their creative talent or their gift, they still are. And that's something that we, we may not fully understand um, in this life. But it's not about the gift, it's not about the wages that the, per, that the people um, earned in this passage, it's not about the talents, it's about who they are given by and who they are pointing to. Um, this, the point of, of, about the generosity of this um, landowner, it's not, they didn't deserve it, but that's not the point. The point is that the landowner was generous to give it, and God is generous to give us things that we, um, we don't deserve. Something else um, that we can learn is that the landowner is just. Um, in verses 8 to 10, we learn um, that he pays them he agreed in denarius with the first workers, and then at the end of the day, he pays the last workers first, and he pays them the same amount. Um, now, you could argue that that's, that's not just, but again, it's not about the wage that he's paying them. He said he would pay the first workers a denarius, and he paid them a denarius. He is faithful to his word, and he is, um, he is just. He must have had another motive because he would have been faced with a probably fairly angry crowd of men demanding more money. So he must have been um, fully confident to stick to his word and send them away with their agreed wage. God keeps his word. When he 
says things to us, when he promises us things in his word, he is faithful to bring that about, even when it feels unfair, even when it feels like life might be crumbling around us and everything's out of our control. We can always trust in his word and we can always be sure that God will keep his promises to us. The third thing that we learn um, about the landowner is that he is sovereign. Um, And he says that himself in um, verses 13 to 15. I'm just going to read it again. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? He He was the ruler in that mini kingdom of his house and his vineyard, he could choose how things were to run and carry that out without being questioned. And if we think about how, um, how that relates to God, God, I mean, throughout the Bible, there's several examples where God literally, well, he is sovereign, but he speaks that um, and claims that for himself. Um, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Isaiah 46. Um, he says, remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do what I please. Now that's, that's huge, like that's God himself proclaiming that. I know, I make known the end from the beginning, not just of your life or of this day, of the whole of, the whole of creation, the whole of, of the world and, and before and, and, and into eternity. In Job 38, um, after Job has spent hmm, 37 chapters um, complaining, um, and his friends haven't really helped matters, God says to him, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. I love, I love God being sarcastic there. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Where were you, Job? Really? Really, you really think that you can sit there and say to me, God, why are you doing this to me? This is awful. Where were you when, when I laid the foundations of the earth? So something else that we know about God, which I want to mention here, even though it's not directly from the passage, is that as well as being sovereign and all-powerful, he is also good and loving, all good and all-loving. And um, when I, I, was, I was thinking, where, where can I you know, go in the Bible to, think, to kind of find a, um, an expression of this um, to us? And the most obvious example came to mind, which we've sung about this morning already. The greatest example of this is him sending his only son to die in our place for us, that we might have eternal life. The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. But rather than us having to pay that wage, that price, God sent his son so that we don't have to. And this is the greatest love that there is from our God, our vineyard owner, our king. There can be no doubt that our vineyard owner is worth working for. He's sovereign, and that's that's a great comfort. But the fact that he is also good and loving and loves us that much, it you know, it wins the argument for me. (laughs) 
So if we look now um, at the workers, initially they were happy to accept the work. They went, um, they were hired, they agreed the wage, and they went to work. However, when it came to payment, they weren't happy. In verse 12, um, they say, the la These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So they're saying, come on, like we've worked for you all day. It's been hot, it's been hard. We've worked really hard, like we said we would, and now you're just, you're giving us less. You're giving us the same, sorry, but it feels like less to what the later workers were paid. I found it helpful here um, to go back a few chapters to look, at, to look at the context and who Jesus was talking to. Um, often in the Gospels, when he's saying something, um, when he's kind of telling people off, it's often directed at the Pharisees. Um, but as we go back, um, in chapter 19, Jesus was being challenged by the Pharisees. Um, they, um, came to test, they came to test him in uh, chapter 19, verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Then um, the children come to him um, in chapter 13. And again, Jesus rebuked the people. Um, in um, verse 16, um, a man comes up to him. It's the rich young ruler who is told that he has to sell everything um, in order to enter the kingdom of God. And then 23, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, as I said before, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And that then leads straight into chapter 20, verse 1. So he's talking to his disciples, it would appear, um, from the text. So I wonder why did the disciples particularly need to hear this? Um, and it, it kind of goes back to, to Peter's question. Peter, Peter asks at the end of Jesus' explanation about the camel and the eye of the needle, um, who, they say, um, who can be saved? See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter's referring to the fact that he's left his business, his home, his family, um, his, his living, and he's probably thinking, what, what's going to happen when this is all over? I've sacrificed everything for you, Jesus. And you're um, teaching these confusing teachings about how to get into the kingdom of God, and I'm not sure that I'm going to get there. Maybe, maybe... Jesus is aware, well, he is aware, but maybe he's referring to the fact that after three years of sacrificially following Jesus, Peter might see the thief on the cross next to Jesus, literally at the last hour of his life, being granted entry into the kingdom of God because he's called out to Christ. Maybe he knew that Peter might have looked at that and thought, it's not fair, God. I've given up everything for you. And here is this man who is a thief and a sinner, and he is also coming into the kingdom of God. Maybe Peter will grumble, but maybe he should also realize the great privilege he has had of walking with Christ on earth for those three years, of serving him, of living with him, and eating with him. Will he marvel that God's generosity extends to sinners and not just to those um, who are, are being obedient. It's not about the, um, the fairness or the unfairness of the situation. God is pointing to his own generosity, and we should marvel at that. We don't really hear much about the reaction of the late workers. Um, I, I imagine them 
hopefully feeling very grateful um, and very blessed from, from their hour of work and a day's wage. I mean, who's going to say no to that? Um, but I also think they might just, like, try and kind of back away and be like, while they're arguing, I'm just going to disappear and, like, go home and try not to run into any of these people who I know worked there all day and I didn't. As many of Jesus' parables are, um, this is a reflection of our human heart. We, we have our own standards, our own expectations based on um, our fleshly thinking and the world that we're in and our, our culture of what is fair and right. And when an outcome, any outcome in our life doesn't match up with that, we can complain, we can grumble and we can think, oh, that's not fair. We can all um, think of things, maybe it was your sibling having more sweets than you, um, maybe it was them getting to sit in the front seat more often than you, um, and that's, those are kind of more trivial examples from my childhood, although they don't feel trivial to us at the time. But even, even in adult life, things happen, and they're often bigger things um, that don't feel fair. I've worked with people, um, well, I do work with people on a daily basis who have a life-changing event, a life-changing illness, um, and they're then recovering from that, and often not recovering completely, and life will never be the same. Some people have literally just retired. They've worked for most of their life. They've retired, and then they have a, a stroke or a, a spinal cord injury that just leaves them you know, unable to enjoy their retirement, which they were planning to do. Others have spent a lifetime serving others um, in a very um, compassionate and um, self, um, self-sacrificing um, way. And, and they're in that situation, and you think, you know, surely it's not fair that somebody, somebody does that and then they can't live the rest of their life um, as they planned. But the last sentence that Jesus says um, in verse 16 um, comes um, at the end of chapter 19 as well and elsewhere in the Bible. The last will be first and the first will be last. God's kingdom rule is different to ours. Um, it, it's very present um, but it's an unseen kingdom, essentially, um, and it's apart from through our acts of obedience. And it's, um, it's completely a different rule to us. The gospel sets the standard for the upside-downness of God's kingdom. We, can't, we were sinners when Christ died for us. We weren't even good. There was nothing good about us when God decided to send his son to die for us. We cannot earn our salvation and that, I think that's a very human kind of drive that you want to be worthy, you want to earn something. We can't reach God. We can't get there. We have to be holy, and we cannot be holy. But he came down to us so that we didn't have to do the impossible because we couldn't. Through the Bible, we see these, the earthly patterns and expectations of us being turned upside down by God. This passage then is telling us that in in life, in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, our life, God is a good, generous and sovereign king who invites us into his kingdom on his terms. We have every reason to serve and trust him without grumbling because he is loving and powerful. The outcome may not be what we expect or what we think fair, but the point isn't about the outcome. The point is about the giver, the king, his generosity, We do have a king, however, who knows what it is to suffer. So he's not a landowner, a king, a god who is um, all-powerful and all-loving and and comforting us in our 
grief and in our hardship. He came here, he came down and he's alongside us and he suffered more than we can ever imagine. So he's not distant. It's all very well to hear or to know inside yourself, oh, I mustn't grumble, I mustn't complain. But God coming to us gives us the depth of understanding and the power to know that he is here with us and he is alongside us. And that gives us the ability to fully understand that and to not complain. I've found for myself that as I've gone through um, preparing this um, and, and before, which I suppose is what led me to it, is that you start in a, in a place within yourself of um, this isn't fair, this is, uh, this is all about me and I'm upset and this isn't fair. And once you, you take, well, I kind of took myself through this, well, who, who is God? He is this sovereign, all-loving God who has given generously to me and he can decide who he gives his gifts to because he is sovereign. And these, the passages in Isaiah and, and Job really helped me. The, that, that feeling of it's unfair, once I'd grasped those concepts, it wasn't there anymore. It's just not relevant. You don't even have to go back and convince yourself. It's not about being fair, Hannah. It's just gone because it's the, it's the truth. It's the word of God. At the beginning, I told you about my um, frustration of Drew walking into, practically walking into this promotion, um, when I felt that, essentially, that I, I deserved it more than he did. Before, before that, before we knew that that job was going to come up, I'd um, taken a new job, which was four days a week. So it was a, a drop, it was like drop in my salary. With the new job, Drew went up a few pay scales, and he earned what I had lost. So our total income was exactly the same. And who knew? <laughs> God is sovereign. And I'm still in a position where I'm still in a band six role. I'd still like to progress. Um, I've interviewed for a few jobs and not got them. But I know that God is sovereign. So I know that if I am where I am, that's where God wants me to be. And I don't have an ending to that story. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if I'll ever get that job. Um, as, as I see others progress, I, I, just, I don't know the outcome, but I know that God knows what he's doing, and I know that he's sovereign, and I love him and trust him because I know that he gave up everything for me. And that's, that's just a, well, of course, of course I'll follow him, of course I'll trust him. So what difference then can these lessons from this passage make to us as we have to live out our lives um, in, this, in this physical world, yet still um, inside God's kingdom? A few weeks ago, um, Drew preached, and he, he, um, the, the main kind of strapline, I guess, I think, from his talk was, remember the works of the Lord. Remind yourself of those occasions when... God has proven to be sovereign and true in your life because it will, it will lift you up. When you thought you knew better, but then at the end of those, you know, you might be in a story that doesn't have an ending, but remind yourself of those stories that are kind of short stories within your life that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and remind yourself of how, um, what the outcome is. 
The Israelites were taught to tell stories of God's works orally to their children in order to remind themselves and the next generation of what God had done for them. So ask other people, tell other people when God has come through for you, when God has proven himself to be sovereign in your life. My, um, my granddad died last June and he was 86 and he'd lived a life full of service to the Lord. Um, they went to um, Papua New Guinea, um, I think when he'd, um, he'd just about retired. And um, when we were at his, um, the Thanksgiving service, one of the, um, one of the people who had been in church with him um, shared a few things about him and said that when they felt God calling them to Papua New Guinea, um, they went to the elders of the church and said, you know, this is what we're thinking, what do you think? And the elders turned around to them and said, if we said no, we don't think you should go, what would you do? And my granddad said, we'd go anyway. Um, and that was just that was the beginning of their, uh, their missionary um, uh, journey, really. They, they um, were in Cameroon for a while, um, Malawi for, for a long time, and they didn't take that lightly. They, they left, they had grown up children. Um, I think they weren't at the wedding of one, one of their children. Um, they, they left um, their daughters as they were having, having children and growing, you know, those children, me, growing up without um, regular contact with their grandchildren. So they knew what they were giving up. But they felt the call of the Lord on their lives and they followed it faithfully. And they have countless stories of how God was faithful to them, how he was sovereign over their lives. And they are so sure, my grandma is so sure that God is good and loving and sovereign that now that my granddad has been called home, she, she's, not, um, she's not striving, she's at peace. And it was a particularly difficult time because he was in hospital, um, he was frail, he did have a couple of medical conditions, but it was a, a mistake of a, of a doctor or a team that led to him dying. And I know from being in healthcare that there can be so much um, striving for, for the truth and so much unacceptance of what happens. But my grandma is so sure that God is sovereign. That there's no question that that wasn't God's timing. There's absolutely no question that that wasn't supposed to happen and it wasn't the right time for my granddad to go home. And it's, it's, my, it's my, you know, I look at them as my, my grandparents and I think if I can be in a similar position um, and if I can remind myself of the works that God has done and the, be so sure of his sovereignty that at life-changing moments I cannot even miss a beat, not even question um, what God has done and who he is. We can also turn to his word um, and let it remind us of his sovereignty. Um, Matthew 20, <laughs> for example. Um, in, in Job, at the end of Job, in um, chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, um, which I've already read, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Surely you must know, Job. Come on. Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And then go back to those. Go back to those when God uses one of those to speak to you. Go back to them in the hard times. Because when we're overcome with emotion or grief or pain, it's, it's hard and we need people around us. But we can always turn to this word. And if you know automatically where to go to, the word will nourish your soul and lift you up and set you back on the right path of being sure of God being who he is and him being loving and sovereign. And this then brings you, well, brought me anyway, full circle round to um, leading me to the foot of the cross and the sacrifice of God's own son. We don't deserve anything. None of us do. But God is generous. And that's the main, um, the main kind of point from, that I took from this passage. He, tr- trusting God, this God who is your sovereign king, who sent his son to die for you, because there's no other there's no other way to go we we will stew in our own self-pity and our own sense of injustice and I did that for a while (laughs) and um and it's not fun it's not good um it stops us living the life that God intended us to live and yet when we turn to his word and we realize who he is again it brings us round in that circle back to the point where we are fully trusting in God and we know and we can be at peace that he is in control